Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Edward Slingerland about drunk. First, wanted to encourage you to go to booksonpod.com. We've recently revamped the website, making it more fun for you to explore past shows. You can now search by episode number, book title, author last name, or even by subject, like going to the science and medicine section and picking episode number 104, Strange Bedfellows, by Ina Park. This is Dr. Ina Park, author of Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Edward Slingerland is Distinguished University Scholar and Professor of Philosophy at the University of British Columbia and the author of Trying Not to Try, Ancient China, Modern Science, and the Power of Spontaneity. His newest book is titled Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. Ted, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Good. So, Ted, what made you want to write this book? I feel that we don't think enough about this, what I think is a mystery hiding in plain sight, which is why do we voluntarily poison ourselves with low-dose neurotoxins? And why have we been doing this for thousands and thousands of years all over the world, throughout history? It's very rare to find a society that is not using chemical intoxicants and not just using them, but really putting it at the center of their culture. So I think this is a mystery we should be a little bit more puzzled about. And we, until now, I think haven't had good scientific answers for why we, why we want to get drunk. You wrote one of the best three-sentence openers for a book that I think I've ever read. Quote, people like to masturbate, they also like to get drunk and eat Twinkies. Not typically all at the same time, but that's a matter of personal preference. Why do these three things get mentioned together? They get mentioned together because the standard story that we've been told is our taste for intoxication is an evolutionary mistake. So uh, masturbation is a classic evolutionary mistake. It's what scientists would call a hijack mistake. So pleasure and pain are evolution's way of getting us to do what it wants us to do, the carrot and stick, right? So the orgasm is the best thing that can happen to a human being because it's typically associated, over time it's been associated with the activity that evolution most wants to encourage, which is passing on copies of our genes. So the orgasm's a reward for doing this thing that our genes want us to do. And humans being clever, and actually other species have figured this out too, is that evolution will give us this reward even for doing other stuff <laughs> that's not passing on our genes. So we've invented all sorts of non-reproductive sexual hijinks to get this pleasure reward without doing the thing that it's actually designed to reward for. And so that's a hijack. We're hijacking pleasure centers to get an, un- if you want to think of it as this way, it's a kind of undeserved reward. But in the case of something like masturbation, evolution can kind of look the other way. It's not terribly costly. The system has worked well enough that we're here to talk about it. So that's a, that's a orgasms, masturbation, non-reproductive sex. This is a classic example of a hijack. We also have mismatches, and that's where the Twinkies come in. <laughs> so there are cases like our taste for junk food where the pleasure we get from eating sugars and fat was adaptive 
for most of our evolutionary history. For most of our evolutionary history, sugars and fats and things like that were in very short supply, and it was adaptive to gorge on them whenever we came across them. This becomes maladaptive really only in modern societies where we have access to junk food and more calories than we know what to do with. But even today, I mean, there are parts of the world where getting enough calories is still a major worry um, and junk food's not a problem. So in this case, it's a mismatch. It was adaptive at one point in our evolutionary history. It's not anymore. But in this case, it's happened so recently and is so geographically limited a problem that evolution hasn't had time or hasn't bothered to deal with it. So those are two examples of mistakes that are pretty much everyone agrees are mistakes. And then our taste for alcohol gets thrown in among them and compared to either the mismatch or the hijack hypothesis. And this doesn't make sense to me because of the massive costs that are involved. So unlike masturbation, drinking is super dangerous. It's really costly. It's bad for your body. It leads to all kinds of um, social problems. It's clear that a good proportion of the human population has a genetic propensity toward alcoholism, and alcoholism is a terrible problem. So it's really costly, and it's not recent. We've been drinking alcohol in a serious way. We've been making and consuming alcohol just about as long as we've been doing anything in an organized fashion. So for at least probably 10, 12,000 years. And you lay out that there's evidence that we may have even been doing this longer than we have been organizing agriculture too, correct? Yeah, so the um, standard story also, it's kind of like the mismatch or uh, mistake theory, is that we settled down, started growing crops to make bread and grain products. And then at some point after that, we noticed that if we left some bread starter somewhere, it started to ferment and wow, we drank it and it was pleasant and that's how we got beer. Since the 50s, archeologists have been arguing that this doesn't make sense when you look at the archeology because we have evidence there that hunter-gatherers, people who didn't have agriculture yet, were coming from far and wide and converging on these sites to engage in some sort of religious rituals. They were massive uh, ritual sites with these big stone pillars carved with animal figures. And they were feasting. And the feasting almost certainly involved massive quantities of beer and other types of alcoholic beverages and probably hallucinogens as well. And so these people have argued that actually, when you look at sites like this, it's, it's starting to look like people started to gather in large groups originally to get intoxicated and probably started paying attention to things like wheat and other grains and um, trying to make them grow more efficiently and produce larger products because they wanted to make beer, not because they wanted to make bread or tortillas or (laughs) grain products. And so if that's true, in a very direct way, our taste for intoxication was responsible for civilization because agriculture is the the foundation of civilization. So we started civilization in order to pursue our desire to get drunk. It's not just a byproduct of having settled down. Well, not just that. Humans are equipped with genetic and cultural defenses against intoxicants. How have we evolved to process and eliminate booze and other intoxicants from our bodies better than most other animals? So we have at least about 12, uh, 10, 10 million years ago or so in our primate lineage, we first 
developed this enzyme called ADH, which is the the first step of breaking down ethanol in the body. So we have a two-step process where we break down ethanol into an intermediate substance and then break it down again into acetic acid, which is pretty harmless. ADH we seem to have developed about 10 million years ago, and this suggests that around that point, our primate ancestors started eating fruit. And, and possibly it's around the time when they started, they came out of the trees and were living on the ground. And the theory is possibly they're having to deal with overripe or rotten fruit. So the ability to deal with small quantities of alcohol and fruit would be advantageous. And you see this adaptation. So this enzyme is not uh, confined to humans and other primates. Uh, other species, bird species that feed on fruit also have it. So we seem to have an ancient adaptation to processing small, very small quantities of alcohol, the kind you'd get appearing naturally in rotting fruit. Um, this doesn't really equip us well for dealing with, say, vodka, <laughs> some liquid that's like 90% alcohol by volume. Um, so our natural alcohol tolerance is not very high. Hmm. So figuring out intoxication's function requires us to determine the problems that it may help with. At the root of this is one of the biggest things that separates us from other animals, Ted, and that's our advanced socialization with other members of our species. In order to evolve, we are required to be the three C's. That's creative, cultural, and communal. We also peak late, meaning that our offspring remain pretty helpless and dependent on others to survive a lot longer than any other animal on the planet. Interestingly, you point out that being creative, cultural, and communal comes much more naturally than it does to children than adults. Why is this? Yeah, so part of understanding why we would use such a dangerous substance as alcohol, in order to understand that, you have to understand our particular ecological niche that we've come to occupy as primates. So we have this really weird ecological niche where we are primates biologically, but especially in large-scale societies— we look more like social insects the way we cooperate. We cooperate on these massive scales, and this doesn't come naturally to us. So we um, we need various tools to help us to cooperate on that sort of scale. And that's where I'm arguing that there's different tools you can use. Religion is one tool. So my colleagues and I have previously argued that religion, or at least certain types of religions, what we call pro-social religions, where you have punishing gods and the idea that you could be watched by supernatural beings and the beings care about human morality. This is one way to get humans to cooperate on a large scale and become these kind of communal cooperative um, animals that we are. But another way is alcohol. Alcohol um, reduces our inhibitions. It improves our mood. It makes us less suspicious of others. It makes us like other people more. It makes us both more trusting and trustworthy. So we're, we're, it's harder for us to lie and deceive and cheat when we're a little bit drunk. And so we've needed this chemical tool to help us to adapt to this niche that we're in. And as you mentioned, um, kids are kind of naturally creative and trusting and cooperative. And then they grow into us, you know, more suspicious, kind of more task-oriented, less creative adults. This is, we need this. So if you look at, say, a four or five-year-old, they're very creative, they're very trusting, they're very open to new information. They're also 
pretty useless. <laughs> they can't build <laughs> tools. They can't even tie their shoes or focus on anything long enough to get anything done. So evolution had a tension here. Um, it wanted us, it needed us to develop, I talk about the prefrontal cortex, which is the key to becoming an adult and having cognitive control, the ability to be goal-focused, uh, the ability to repress desires and distractions. We needed that, and it's the part of the brain that develops latest, so it doesn't develop until we're well into our 20s. But by developing the PSC, we're giving up some of these childlike traits that are also very important for us as a species. So one way to look at what alcohol is doing is it's a way for us to temporarily shut off our PFC so we can return to being childlike in various ways. And yet we're still adults with adult capacities and adult knowledge. But there is a point where it goes from productive to counterproductive, correct? Yeah. So at about 0.08 BAC is, seems to be the sweet spot for all the effects we want. We've become more creative, trusting all these good things. Once you start getting uh, to 0 0.1, 0.15, 0.2, that's when you start getting seriously drunk. That seems to then flip you over into more dangerous, destructive territory as opposed to helpful territory. And this is why alcohol is much more dangerous now than it's ever been in our evolutionary history, because for most of our history, we've been drinking, you know, like 3% ABV beers. And if we have fruit wine, it was usually coming in at 8 or 9 maybe 10% alcohol by volume. In the last few hundred years, we've developed new types of yeast that can boost those levels. So you can get really strong beers now. You get beers up to like 8%. You can get wines up to 16 or even 17%. But the real killer app, if you want to remove the safety switch that normally comes with alcohol, is distillation. So turning a beer or a wine into a distilled liquor. And this is something we only figured out how to do on a large scale a few hundred years ago because it's simple in concept, but it's very difficult to pull off technologically. And this then gives you a beverage that's coming in at anywhere, go up to like 90-something percent alcohol by volume. And that's now a total, I think it, we really should view distilled liquors as a completely different drug. It's so much more powerful than anything we've ever had in our evolutionary history. And you can very quickly, if you have access to distilled liquors, you can just blow past 0.08, you know, in a matter of a half an hour and be at really dangerous levels of inebriation in a way that's really just almost physically hard to get to if you're drinking 3% beer. Yeah, and you point. I think you say something to this effect in your book that it's really hard to get drunk to the point of throwing up, much less dying, if you're drinking beer. It is much simpler if you're drinking liquor. Yeah, you can, just volume-wise. You've got to drink such a large quantity of liquid that it's difficult just physically to hold that much liquid in your stomach. But yeah, so the all the safety rails come off with distilled liquors. And uh, that's why we need to really be wary about young people using them, and especially anyone using them in the absence of social controls. Another new kind of dangerous feature of alcohol now is that we more and more are drinking alone. So historically, we never had private access to alcohol. 
you would never have alcohol in your home. You would drink alcohol in a public communal context, always with other people. In ancient times and even today in China, at a banquet, you don't drink as much as you want. You wait until a toast is made and then everyone does a shot of Pai Joe, the sorghum liquor. And the host is in charge of timing the toast. And so if things are getting out of hand, he can, you know, stop doing toast for a little while until people get a more, you know, some more rice in their stomachs to soak up the alcohol. Um, very similar functions in societies around the world. So one way we've, as cultures, figured out how to deal with this dangerous substance is to control it socially. And even um, in very informal, so, you, you know, these ritual situations are obvious. You might think that in very informal situations, it's completely informal. Everyone's drinking as much as they want. But there's actually really interesting ethnographic work that shows that even you know young people at someone's house apparently drinking as much as they want aren't drinking as much as they want. They're regulating their consumption. They're mm. paying attention to how much other people are drinking. There's often kind of formal or informal taboos about throwing away or recycling your empties. So people are drinking and they put their bottle down next to them. And that's like a, it's like a chalkboard saying, I've had one drink <laughs> and everyone knows how much you've had to drink. And if you see that you have more empty bottles next to you than your friends, you slow down. We do this in bars, right? So if you go drinking with friends in a pub or a bar, you don't drink as much as you want. Everyone drinks around. And if you finish your beer really fast, you're going to have to wait until everyone else is done before everyone orders another round, right? Or if you decide you're going to break it and get another drink without everyone else, it's really weird, right? It's socially looked down upon. And so when we drink with other people, sometimes we're completely unconscious about how this is working, but we're regulating our drinking in a way that's helpful. Now, neither you nor I is obviously encouraging anybody to do this who's listening right now, but is there a benefit to drinking to the point of just being utterly shit-faced? This is tricky territory because this is where drinking gets really dangerous. It's where not only you know danger of death uh, comes in, but that's when people do really bad things. Right. This is when sexual assaults happen, when people drive the cars into telephone poles. I argue that there may be a function for occasional excess. So it may serve a binding, social binding function for people to get drunk together. I talk about a story from this book, Stealing Fire, that came out a few years ago, where they interview a Navy SEAL commander who at the end of training takes his trainees out to a local bar and they get really drunk on shots they're drinking tequila and serious alcohol and alcohol in this way could serve a function that's very similar to other types of painful costly rituals so another way people bond historically in religions is by having these rites of passage where to become a man or to become a true part of the tribe you have to endure some sort of really brutal intense experience. It's also in, often involving tattooing or scarification or things like that. Getting really, really drunk at certain junctures in your life may serve a similar function. Well, I think back to my college days, Ted, and again, I don't encourage anybody to do this. It's incredibly bad for you. It leads to awful decisions. But there were moments like those next day moments where you and your buddies are sitting around the living room or whatever, like piecing the previous night together. And there is a sort yeah. of bonding ritual that goes along with that. 
Yeah, you've been through a kind of dangerous and in some ways painful experience together. And that we know experimentally and ethnographically this binds people together. So that's got to be one function that alcohol has served. But you have to be really careful with it. And especially college campuses are almost like a case example of how you wouldn't want to use alcohol. (laughs) Yes. Just because... College kids are their PFCs aren't developed yet. Your mm-hmm. PFC doesn't fully mature until you're probably 25, 24, 25. So they already don't really have good cognitive control. And then they're further down regulating it with alcohol. They're turning it down even more with alcohol. And they're often inexperienced drinkers. And so they just drink too much, you know, and they're drinking, they have access to liquor. And so they're getting really drunk really fast especially American college drinking culture seems to me really almost pathologically unhealthy. Alcohol is classified as a depressant, but that's a bit of an incomplete definition. What is alcohol's biphasal effect? Yeah, so it it has different effects over the time course as alcohol is getting processed in your body. So it's actually initially a stimulant. So when you first start drinking, you, you're primarily experiencing stimulant effects. So it's um, upping your serotonin. So it's working a little bit like Prozac. It's upping endorphins. So it's working a little bit like Valium. It's making you feel good. It's damping down pain. It's giving you more energy. When it goes into its depressive phase, that's when it really starts to do its number on the prefrontal cortex. So that's when it's, it's turning down the prefrontal cortex, relaxing your cognitive control. And this is an important effect as well. But that's where if you blow past the safe point of inebriation in that second depressive phase, that's when it can start. If you've, had, you've blown past 0.08 and you're getting to like 0.3%, um, 0.4, that's when you start to black out. It's shutting down your motor systems. It can shut down your, shut down your lungs and you stop breathing. That's when it gets really dangerous. So you know, historically, what humans have been shooting for is about that 0.08 blood alcohol level, about two, three drinks in. And so obviously that is a bit of a relative number. It depends on the activity that you're engaging in. For instance, if you're driving, the perfect number of drinks is zero. But there are other things where there is a little bit of a difference there. And that brings me to something called Balmer's Peak. What is the concept of Balmer's Peak, named after former Microsoft CEO and current owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, Steve Balmer? Yeah, so I was introduced to this concept at a talk. So I gave years ago, I was giving a talk on my previous book. I have a a previous trade book called Trying Not to Try. And it's about the primarily about the link between spontaneity and creativity and social trust. And in passing in that talk, I mentioned a study where Art, artificial spontaneity in the form of drunkenness. So taking people to about 0.08 BAC caused them to become more creative. They were better at solving these lateral thinking tasks. And the and the and your ability at that task seems to peak around 0.08 and then get worse as you get, um, as you blow past that number. And so I just, this was kind of a minor point in my talk, but at the Q&A, the first hand that went up, shot up, was this guy who said, hey, do you know about the Balmer Peak? And so this is supposedly this idea that Steve Balmer figured out that your coding ability peaked at this very narrow blood alcohol content and would keep himself hooked up to an alcohol IV to 
you know, carefully titrated. So he just stayed exactly at that peak for, you know, days at a time so he could code. Um, It's almost certainly made up. But it it gets at this idea that for tasks that require creativity and insight, alcohol can be really useful. And and so after the talk, so this guy told me about the Balmer Peak, and then they were going to take me on a campus tour after. And the first place they said, okay, we know where we're going first. And they took me to their whiskey room. And this was this place where they said if they got stuck, if they were you know banging their heads against the wall on some coding problem, instead of sitting in front of their computers, they would go to this room, pour themselves a scotch, sit in a beanbag chair, and relax and just talk it through. And something about that, the relaxing of your cognitive control that happens as you get into that depressive phase and your PFC starts to shut down allows you to see things in a different way. Um, It's reducing your inhibitions, and so you'll say things that maybe you would have censored yourself from saying earlier because they would have sounded stupid and you don't want to look stupid in front of your colleagues, but maybe you're like, hey, what if we did this? Hmm. It makes you more, uh, alcohol makes you more risk risk tolerant, which is, you know, bad if you're driving, Hmm. but which is good if you're trying to solve an intellectual problem. So, um, that's what kind of, that's when I really started to think about this current book project was when I realized that there's this problem of how you can get yourself into a spontaneous state of mind voluntarily. That's what my first book is about is how can you try to be spontaneous if you're not already spontaneous? It's, it's paradoxical. Man, those Silicon and, Valley guys are such risk takers with regards to the things that they're willing to put into their bodies to help with performance. Yeah. Like you've heard about Peter Thiel and his uh, desire to get the uh, blood of healthy young people pumped into him, and you got, <laughs> you got Steve that. Steve Palmer with the uh, yeah. with the alcohol IV now, and uh, Silicon Valley really popularized this idea of microdosing as well, which you talk a little bit about in drunk for people who are unfamiliar what is microdosing and is research boosting the anecdotal experiences of those partaking yeah so microdosing is doing psychedelics at a low dose where you're not having a full kind of blow your mind seeing god kind of trip but you're just a little you're altered enough that you're starting to think in a different way and the claim is that microdosing can boost creativity in the same way alcohol boosts creativity, but without the, the bad side effects. So psychedelics in general are much safer than alcohol. They're, they're not addictive. They don't have the same health consequences. They don't hurt your liver. Um, so if, if that were true, it, it's possible. So I bring uh, microdosing in in the context of, hey, alcohol is the best tool we've historically had to do this job but maybe we now have better ones. It's possible that if we've never had the ability to microdose before because we couldn't, you know, we couldn't extract the um, active ingredient in these psychedelics and titrate it perfectly and all these things we can do now. So maybe it's the case that um, there are safer ways to get there than, than alcohol and microdosing may be one of them. But the, the jury is still out. In terms of the research, there's, um, there's lots of anecdotal evidence. There's, some, there's a few studies that I talk about in the book that aren't great. Um, they don't have a placebo arm, for instance, or they don't, they don't have control groups. So, but there, there are large-scale studies of, of this going on right now. So in another year or two, we may know a lot more. 
Are there any methods that don't involve intoxicants that can have a similar social effect as alcohol? Anything that's going to boost your endorphins, which is going to make you feel good and make you like other people more, and that's going to turn down your prefrontal cortex so that you're unguarded and less less able to lie and mm-hmm. less likely to lie. Anything that's going to do that would work. And so, yeah, there's lots of non-chemical ways you can get there. So you could, and cultures use these, right? You could uh, go through extreme pain. So you could go through scarification rituals where you're experiencing, you're getting burned with a poker. You're, really bad things are happening to you mm-hmm. physically. Pain can do this to you. Sleep deprivation can do it to you. So a lot of cultures have, again, instead of getting really, really drunk or getting blowing your mind on psychedelics, they have you dance and chant and sing for three days in a row without sleeping. And intense sleep deprivation will put you into a similar state. So there are non-chemical ways to do this. Um, even um, the runner's high, so the, the feeling you get when you've been, you know, if you've done really intense exercise is, is giving you that same effect. Your endorphins are getting pumped up and your body in response to the demand from your muscles and your heart and your lungs, your body decides, okay, the PFC doesn't need as much energy right now. We don't need to think right now. Let's deal with our body. And so it down, it effectively turns down the PFC. So there are non-chemical ways to do it as well. I believe there is a uh, cannabinoid release that happens with the runner's high as well. Now, drinking mm-hmm. too much has led to countless regrettable one-night stands. Why does alcohol increase our sexual desire? It increases libido, so it actually increases desire directly. Um, it's unclear why. Um, probably the reason we see more sexual activity is the reduction of inhibitions. So it reduces our inhibitions. So it's pumping up desire. It's reducing inhibitions. It's making you feel more attractive. So when you're drunk, there's good experimental evidence on this. When you're drunk, you think that you yourself are more attractive. And you also find other people more attractive. So the kind of famous beer goggle phenomenon. (laughs) Um, So it's, again, clearly historically been used by a tool for humans to enhance intimacy in that way. But again, it's the kind of thing that it's, it's a tricky balance and it can get really bad really fast. And so I think used by responsible adults Beer and wine can be a helpful tool for enhancing intimacy, but when used by a bunch of already PFC-challenged college students, unsupervised drinking hard liquor, (laughs) really bad things can happen. And so, um, it's you know, alcohol is this really double-faced cultural phenomenon. It's got these positive, what I'm trying to do is, is feature the positive effects, but you also have to see the dangers that are involved. And almost every positive effect that you can point to for alcohol has a negative consequence if it's taken too far. Well, that's why I think it's important. And we've obviously talked about it throughout our chat today. And you did a great job in the book as well of helping people to understand that there is a point of moderation, that if you go past it, the net returns are going to be more negative than they are positive for most people. Like I know the occasional person who they can get stupid drunk and they just become a happier version of themselves. That person is much fewer and further between than somebody like me who goes through a Jekyll and Hyde transformation 
once I've gone past really? that point. Yeah, I'll, I try not to get there anymore, and I can get away with it from time to time, but if I go back to, I don't know, late teens, early 20s drinking me, that would not be a good thing for anybody who had to be around me with any sort of regularity. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so that's the day. So inhibitions are good, right? There's a reason that we developed the ability to inhibit our behavior. We, we couldn't be functional adults without that. So... We want to we want to value we want to understand the value of inhibitions and responsible behavior, while still seeing how t- taking away the playground monitor every once in a while for a little bit could also be helpful. Yeah, speaking of surveys about alcohol use, find that people primarily drink obviously for social enhancement, but the second most cited reason that you write about in drunk is self enhancement, aka having fun. Why is achieving ecstasy as fundamental for humans as playing? The central argument of the book is an evolutionary one. So I'm trying to figure out essentially why evolution would let us get away with liking to get drunk. It seems like a puzzling thing. And to answer that question, the only thing that you're allowed to put, so we know all the negative costs, the only thing you're allowed to put in the positive column are functional effects, so adaptive functions. So helping us be more creative, communal, successful as groups, whatever. You can't talk about pleasure there because evolution doesn't care about pleasure. Our our genes don't care if we're happy or not. In fact, they seem to want to keep us in a state of dissatisfaction. It seems to be in their interest to keep us dissatisfied, so (laughs) we're constantly trying to do better. Um, But we're not our genes. And so there's a point at which our interests diverge from our genes' interests. And so near the end of the book, I want to bring pleasure back in. So, you know, if you ask why do people like to get drunk, the shallow answer is, well, because it makes us feel good. And it's shallow because it doesn't answer the evolutionary question. You know, why does evolution let it make us feel good? That's what the bulk of the book is about. But then at the end, I want to return to this the first thing that t- comes to people's minds, which is it makes us feel good. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Like pleasure should have a place in the calculus. And so I want to, at the end, bring pleasure back in and say, in addition to all these functional effects, which are important, alcohol makes us feel good. It um, It is directly pleasurable and it's stimulating these reward centers in our brain. And it's also pleasurable in that it gives us a break from consciousness. It's hard being a conscious being and constantly monitoring your behavior and your words. And there's something pleasurable about um, relaxing into a kind of you know ecstasy in the Greek sense of being outside yourself, ecstasis not being trapped in your own mind anymore um, and, and feeling part feeling part of something bigger than you, whether it's a group of people you're drinking with or um, having a drink outside in a beautiful environment. We need that. And so um, I want to not, after making the evolutionary argument, I want to make the hedonistic argument that pleasure is important and we need to make room for it in our lives. We certainly can't have this conversation, and you write about this in the book as well, without talking about alcoholism. You provide some interesting rationale for cultural differences that affect rates of alcoholism. For instance, why is alcoholism so much higher in Russia than someplace like Italy? Yeah, it's a great question. So this is where cultural tricks for managing alcohol become important. So 
as far as we know, human a, a pretty high percentage, probably about 15% of humans have a genetic propensity to alcoholism. They're very likely to become alcoholics if given certain types of access to alcohol. And yet, as you say, the, I point out in the book, the rates of alcoholism really vary in different cultures. It's got to be about cultural norms around drinking. And so what's distinctive about Italy, for instance, this is what anthropologists sometimes call a southern drinking culture, as in southern European. So in southern drinking cultures, alcohol is a part of everyday life. It's a part of every mealtime. It's usually in the form of beers and wines and not so much distilled liquors. They have distilled liquors, but they're not they're not the main form of alcohol that's consumed. Kids get introduced to alcohol quite early as just a normal part of life. So, uh, you know, in Italy, a kid will get some watered down wine with their meal from a pretty early age and, mm. and kind of less watered down as they get older. And so kids learn that alcohol is just kind of a normal part of life and something you do at mealtime. Actual drunkenness, like really like getting past 0.08 and getting into sloppy drunk where you're slurring your words and is really looked down upon. So public drunkenness is condemned and people who are who get too drunk um, are viewed with suspicion. So all of these things go together to help moderate your drinking. And drinking's only done with other people at mealtime. So um, when I, my ex-wife's half Italian and has a lot of relatives there. And I remember my first first trip, I guess. Um, you know, we had wine with, with dinner and it was amazing wine because, you know, it's coming from Canada or the taxes are so high here, you can't get any good wine. Um, so this is this amazing Italian wine and I wanted to take a glass with me to bed just to savor it while I read a book right before bed. And I remember my in-laws kind of looking at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you don't take alcohol away from the table. You, mm. you drink it at the table with other people, and then that's it. And all of that functions to, to moderate your alcohol consumption. Um, so that's a southern drinking culture. In a northern, as a northern European drinking culture, which also includes Eastern Europe, like Russia, uh, it's uh, drinking is a is not part of daily life. It's a kind of special activity that you do. They tend to drink hard liquor more than beers and wines, or they go their kind of preferred liquor is a hard liquor. Um, it's it's taboo. Kids aren't allowed to drink. It's something only grown-ups do, and it's kind of special, dangerous thing. Public drunkenness is, if not encouraged, at least not um, frowned upon. And in, and in many cases, it's, it's encouraged, it's seen as a sign that you're one of the guys and you're kind of, you're a man if you can, you know, get really drunk and um, really tie one on. Uh, people drink alone more in cultures like this. It's not as socially regulated. And, and so if you have a culture like this, alcohol is going to be much more, if you're an alcoholic in that kind of culture, the, the slippery slope to dangerous alcoholism is quite steep, whereas there, there are safeguards and buffers in a Southern drinking culture. So one of the things I argue in the book is there are ways in which you can introduce Southern drinking culture type safeguards to your own alcohol consumption life, even if you're not Italian, <laughs> you don't happen to be Italian. Near the end of the book, you run down a list of ideas that can help someone achieve the benefits of intoxicants without them becoming problematic. Things like alternative bars, mindful drinking, limiting liquor and drinking alone. 
normalizing drinking and leveling the playing field for drinkers and non-drinkers alike. What do you mean by that last thing, leveling the playing field for drinkers and non-drinkers alike? So one of the functions of alcohol socially is to, to bond people together, right? So you go, you go drinking with your buddies, you get a little drunk, you share stories that maybe you wouldn't share otherwise, you feel like you get to know them better, you're now more likely to cooperate with one another. Um, in a professional context, you see people using alcohol this way. So let's say um, at a hotel conference bar, after all the talks are done, all the formal programming is done, people gather, they start drinking, they start talking in ways they wouldn't talk otherwise, sharing information they might not share otherwise, um, feeling more bonded with the people they're talking to. This is, a, this is a positive function. It's helping people to bond. But what if you don't drink? What if you're a non-drinker because you're Muslim, because you're a recovering alcoholic, because you're pregnant and you don't want to drink, because you have to get up in the morning early and go take the kids to daycare. There are, all, there are lots of reasons why a person wouldn't want to participate in alcohol-fueled bonding. And it's, it's unfair to exclude them from the benefits of this. Um, so this is the tricky thing. Um, creating an in-group through drinking creates an out-group. And it tends to disadvantage uh, women, especially, because in a lot of social drinking environments, women are wary of sexual harassment or the types of things men start doing when they downregulate their, their PFCs. Um, so is that it's not fair to women. Um, it's not fair to non-drinkers of whatever stripe. So there's, in the modern context, we've got to figure out a way, and it's, a, it's tricky. It's not, there's no clear answers to get the benefits of alcohol-based sociality while trying as much as possible to minimize the, the downsides and the unfairness of it. And what do you mean by mindful drinking? Is there maybe a practical piece of advice that you can offer up to somebody right now who wants to practice mindful drinking? So this is a, a term coined by Ro Rosamund Dean, uh, a British writer. She's a book called Mindful Drinking. And her argument is that we, we too often drink in a habitual, mindless way. So we get home from work and we pour ourselves a glass of wine. And we don't think about, do I really want that glass of wine? <laughs> do I need it right now? Um, we you know, will often slug it down without really tasting it. So she's arguing that if you actually are mindful of your drinking, so you say, I'm going to have a drink now and I'm doing it for this reason and I'm going to, I'm going to pay attention to my drinking. I'm going to savor the glass of wine I'm having. I'm going to not just mindlessly pour myself another glass when this is gone. I'm going to think about if I really want another glass. Just simply doing that will moderate your alcohol consumption. And may make you realize some nights you don't need that glass of wine after after dinner. Maybe you should go for a walk instead. Last question, Ted. This is going to be the most important question that I ask you today. How much right. of this book was written when you were right around that point oh eight mark? <laughs> That's a good question because it's it's actually funny. Um, when I was writing the book proposal, I couldn't get it right. I did like 10 versions of it, and my agent kept saying, nope, nope, not, not good yet. And she was right. She's good. And I knew it, too. There's something just not popping with it. 
And then I realized, oh, you know what? I haven't taken my own advice. I haven't written any of this while drunk. And I was, I just arrived in New Zealand. This was back pre-COVID days when people traveled. Um, <laughs> and I had, I checked into my hotel and I was supposed to have dinner with colleagues. And I had about two hours before dinner. And so I went down to the hotel bar with my laptop and ordered a Negroni and looked at the proposal and was like, yeah, what's wrong with this? And about two sips into Negroni number two, which is, <laughs> I think, about where I was getting to 0.08, um, that first few lines in the beginning of the show today, like so much, just popped into my head. Like, it, I really felt like I was just taking dictation. And I wrote essentially the first page of the book was dictated to me by some part of my brain because the playground monitor was gone and my unconscious could communicate to me and say, hey, here's here's a way to do it in a punchy, funny way instead of that stupid way you were opening the book before. And so that the beginning of the proposal became the beginning of the book. And so that was a, it was a good example. It was very revealing to me that um, I needed to take my own advice. Well, the intro was a banger, so I guess it worked, right? Yeah, yeah, it worked. Edward Slingerland is Distinguished University Scholar and Professor of Philosophy at the University of British Columbia. His new book is titled Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. Ted, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful book. Thanks. It's a lot of fun. Thanks as well to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for listening. Join me next time when I speak with cognitive scientist and former Obama White House advisor Maya Shunker about why change is so beneficial to our evolution. You can listen, learn, and subscribe at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. <laughs>